So we are in the book of Philippians. Uh, we're looking at this amazing letter that Paul wrote to a church that was surrounded by such cultural pressure and such, uh, and <clears throat> such animosity uh, towards the faith and this, uh, um, this uh, counter view of life and lordship in that what was the prevailing dominant theme at the time. That if you wanted peace, if you wanted prosperity, you look to Rome. That Caesar is Lord. And here comes this people saying, no, 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 there's only one unshakable kingdom, the kingdom of God. And there's only one true king, and that is Jesus Christ. Overturning the whole system. That our primary allegiance is to Jesus. But as they are surrounded by these cultural pressures... They, uh, it, it began, the pressure from without began to, to create some cracks from within. And in, this, uh, in the pressure they were facing, Paul writes them a letter to remind them who they are, who they belong to, to fix their eyes back on Jesus, that they would be unified around Christ. And so the heart of this letter is a call back to Jesus. And at the heart of grace, it is a call every morning when we get together and we worship God together and we open our hearts to him and to one another. When we open the word to see, okay, God, how are you shaping and forming me? We are, the call is always back to Jesus, to remember who is king, to remember who is in charge, and to submit our lives to him and to, to his way. That's what we do, this rhythm of worship that we enter into. It's not about a service we attend. It's not about a building we come to, an organization we belong to. It's about a people that we are being formed into as the living body of Christ, the, the visible image of Jesus in this world. And one of the really beautiful ways uh, that we live into this identity as the body of Christ is uh, this call to give our lives away to others. And that's where we're going to be going in this chapter in Philippians 2. But before that, I just wanted to celebrate some of the the, the good work that's happening in our community uh, through our congregation. And so I just want to invite Nicole up. Over the last year, one of the open doors God has given us to to be a gospel people, a good news people, has been uh, to uh, engage in the foster care system. And uh, and specifically, God gave our, our church a call about a year ago to intentionally care and, uh, for and love foster families that aren't a part of a church. Uh, we recognize that in Walton County, if you belong to a church and you're a foster family, odds are there's a care team around you. There's a group of families that are helping provide for you. But just realizing for our non-church neighbors, who's loving on them? Who's showing up at their front door? And so God put on Nicole and some other folks' hearts this, uh, this desire that gave them this, this kind of burden and passion to say, how, why are we not showing up? How do we show up? And what was beautiful, what was amazing is watching over the last, I mean, how long has it been? Nine months? Almost a year now, I guess. 
the way that you as a church in mass have responded and said, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that. So, Nicole, tell us what's going on and celebrate a little bit about what's happening. Hey, I'm Nicole Swart. Um, <clears throat> so, the name of the ministry, I don't know if you mentioned it, but it's called The Village. Um, and it's, like Brian said, it's a foster family support um, ministry. We create meal teams to wrap around families and support them. Um, we have a few that are in our church, the, the few families that are in our church, but we have actually more families that we're serving outside of our church right now than in. So that's awesome. Um, we want to continue to do that. So um, one way that we can kind of touch base with people outside of our church is to offer a parents' night out. You'll see a little... Um, QR code up here on the screen. We need volunteers to serve at that, so that's the last Friday of this month. Um, <clears throat> so if you're interested in volunteering, you can scan that QR code, or you can email me, or you can catch me after the service, and we can chat, and I can answer some questions for you. But we need volunteers in all kinds of ways, to play with kids, to hold babies, to serve food, to um, lead crafts and games. Um, it's a lot of fun. We did it back in March, and we served about 25 foster children, um, and everyone served as a family. It was wonderful. I brought my kids along. They had a great time, um, so I definitely encourage you to serve as a family or serve as a grace group if you want to. Um, I have a place for you, <laughs> so um, no spot is too small. Um, in addition, if you, if you end up going to this Parents' Night Out and loving serving these families, we need more volunteers for meal teams so that we can create teams for more families out in the community and continue to spread Christ's love to those who don't attend a regular church and have that support system around them. I think that's it. Oh, there's training next Sunday, sorry. <laughs> the Parents' Night Out training is next Sunday in the coffee shop at 1045. So if you sign up, I'll send you an email to remind you of that, but you can also join us next Sunday at 1045. That's awesome. So to do the date night, they need to go to that training. So if you want to go on a sign up this week so you can come be a part of that 1045 next Sunday. So tell me why. So date night, I mean, I love going on a date night with Sadie. It's fun. Um, a, a part of our regular rhythm, but why is that so important? Like, how, why is this such a blessing to these families to, to get a day night? Like, what's the significance? Why a day night? Um, well, if you're not familiar, um, foster parents have a lot of appointments on a lot of places. They need to take their um, foster children to meet up with their biological parents to keep up with any kind of medical appointments and things like that. It's also difficult to find... Um, a safe environment for them to just hang out for a few hours so that the foster parents can just relax a little bit. So we just want to be able to provide a kid-friendly, safe environment so that they can go grab a bite to eat, have a conversation with their spouse or partner, and um, enjoy themselves and feel refreshed. Because um, <clears throat> there's a statistic that I like to share. Sorry for clearing my throat right in there. 50% um, of first-year foster families quit after the first year, but 90% stay in the foster care system, continue taking placements if they have support. So we want to work on that 90% and just and keep families who have already gone through all the work of the home studies and, you know, all the things. It takes a lot of work to become a foster family, um, and it, it seems silly to go through all of that and then just quit after a year. We don't want you to quit. We want, <laughs> we want to keep supporting 
these families that, that do this hard work. Awesome. Well, let's give Nicole a, a round of applause. Thank you for that. It's time for that day night. I mean, we feel this call is, uh, is uh, these children are the most vulnerable children in our community. And if we say that we are a church that's about the next generation, then why would we, you know, as passionate as we are about showing up in the schools, about uh, supporting and encouraging those who uh, invest in kids and in students. In fact, right now, you can be praying. I think there's 30-ish something uh, student, middle school and high school students from Grace Monroe that are uh, with a few hundred other students from across the Grace family up at Sharp Top Cove this weekend. So uh, this morning is their last uh, uh, teaching time and worship uh, time. And so be praying for those students to encounter Jesus in a profound and powerful way. Uh, even as they're away this weekend. But these kids, uh, there's a lot of kids that don't have those kind of opportunities. They don't have families praying for them, surrounding them. And they come, uh, they're coming out of backgrounds of incredible turmoil and trauma. And, uh, and their families uh, that are embracing, creating space, a home for these kids to come into. And, uh, and obviously we'd love ideally for every one of those families to be a Jesus follower, amen? That would be the absolute best environment for a kid out of a traumatic background to be brought into is Jesus following families that love God and love one another. Amen? That's the goal, right? The kingdom of God. That's not everyone. That's not the case. And so there's families that may not know Jesus. They don't know God yet, uh, but they're still creating space for kids. And who more important for us to surround and love and encourage than those families that are pouring out and may not even have access to the same resources and the same father that we have access to. And so, uh, and so for us to show up into in the, in, the most vulnerable, we feel like is just simply uh, just being obedient to who Jesus is. And so we invite you into that to be a part of that. And, uh, and I know I'm loving you know, the, um, the, the call, the village to the to foster family uh, environment is, is one way that God is stirring up mission to the most vulnerable in our community. Um, but what I'm loving out of our congregation and just celebrating is the, is the, is the number of ways that God is creatively uh, awakening kingdom dreams inside of this body in a way that impacts and transforms our community. And so uh, whether you're called to step around the fire that uh, Nicole and Laura and that team have, have started around foster families or God is starting a, a, a burning a fire in you. Um, a, a new dream, a, a new idea. My hope is not, not whether you join Nicole or you look at her example and step forward in faith to say, okay, God, this is what I'm burdened for. This is what I'm passionate about. And that the church then has an opportunity to come and surround you in the thing that God has put in your heart uh, to live into for the sake of his kingdom. Amen? Amen. I want to pray, actually. I meant to pray when Nicole's standing here, but um, let's do this. Uh, let's stand up. Everyone stand up. And if you're around Nicole, let's put a hand on her shoulder. I'd love to just pray over, over her and the ministry she represents. But I want to do something a little bit different as we pray. I'm totally making this up as I go. So I want to point outward. And so wherever you're sitting, whatever the nearest wall of the church is, uh, just turn and face that wall. I guess that could be facing me still. Not the stage. Away from the stage because everything's always looking at the stage. Look at the back wall. Look north. Look south. And just close your eyes, and if you're willing, just extend a hand. And just in your own heart, even just if you want to like, speak it out loud, let's just pray for our neighbors. Pray for the vulnerable and the lost, those that feel like they're the least, that feel forgotten and unseen, that they would encounter Jesus 
And if they want to, if God wants to use you, if you're willing, say yes. But let's pray for our neighbor out loud. Let's go. Amen. Come on. Let's do it. Pray. Yes, Lord. God, we pray for those outside of these walls, for those that are lost, uh, those that feel forgotten and unseen. God, those that, need, that have lost hope, that there are some right now that are contemplating whether their life is even worth living. There are some that don't even know how they're gonna make it through this week. There are some that are waking up this morning with hungry bellies. God, that are scared in their own homes. God, there, there are those that aren't waking up without a home. And so, Lord, we pray God, for the vulnerable, for those on the margin, for the outsider, Lord, that they would know that you are a God that embraces them, that you're a good father that sees them and loves them as sons and daughters, that you created them in your image, that there's a dignity within them, God, because you, you, are, you are God and they are yours. And so, Lord, I pray that they would encounter you in a powerful way. And Lord, if you choose to use us, Lord, however you choose to use us as your church, as your people, Lord, we say yes. Call us forward into whatever, whoever, however, Lord. May we be willing to go in your name, in the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's be seated. Actually, just kidding. Stand up again. We're going to read God's word together. It's like a CrossFit workout. (laughs) Philippians chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You may be seated. Now you may actually be seated. It's a beautiful passage. Uh, basically, it preaches itself. But um, 
a few things I want to draw out of this. Paul's plea. I'm having a hard time with this water bottle. Is that the church would be unified. I mean, you can hear it in his, in his voice. It's like, if there's anything in you, then be of one mind. If you've encountered the love of Jesus in any way, if you've received any comfort, any encouragement, if the love of God has done anything in your life, if you have one ounce of compassion, any bit of affection, then let my joy overflow in this, that you would be one. I mean, it's the same prayer that Jesus prayed, uh, the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus uh, before he headed out the door to the cross. And when he says, uh, John 17, that I'm not just praying for the ones in this room, I'm praying for all of those that are going to believe in me through them. And this is what I pray, that they would be one even as you and I, Father, are one. That he knew there's something in the unity of the body of Christ that was crucial for the glory of God and the mission of God to be accomplished here on earth. And what he's seeing is, here is a people that have loved me well, and, and he, or that have loved God well, and here's a people who have served God well. Here are people who have been sacrificially generous with the little bit that they have, that have been passionate for the things of God. And I'm beginning to watch this poisonous, divisive uh, conflict from, that is beginning to undermine the very faith that they have so strongly stood upon for years. So if there's any bit of Jesus in you, come together as one. Be unified, he's saying. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And that word there for selfish ambition is actually a word uh, that the, the oldest uses of that word in the Greek were about corrupt politicians that would, uh, that would um, intentionally manipulate others to try to hold office. Thank goodness we're way past that. But there's this, uh, there's this, this word, this idea that they, would, that they would procure their office by illegal man manipulation. To they would demean and exploit others in order to gain their own advantage. And so Paul co-ops that word out of the, the Roman world to say, don't let this be who we are in the church. That we manipulate others, that, that we demean others in order to get our way. In fact, it makes sense now if you put that word, it's the same word, uh, backwards into chapter 1, when he's talking about preaching Christ out of selfish ambition, which is like, okay, how does that even work? And, and Paul then says, hey, I'm not worried about it. Listen, as long as Jesus is getting proclaimed, it's all good. But how in the world would somebody be proclaiming Jesus for their own advantage? But I don't think we have to look far to see a church world that it can be built using the name of Jesus to build our own empires. And Paul is saying, do not let this be you. Do not let this creep into the church. 
do nothing out of this manipulative advancement of your own agenda or, or, uh, or conceit. And that word conceit is, uh, it carries this idea, it's, <laughs> it's basically being puffed up with nothing, being full of hot air. This idea is like, that there's like, building of a persona. Jesus uses, uh, oftentimes, he'll use the, the word that we get the word hypocrite from. And it carries the same idea. Hypocrite is the idea of like a, literally an actor that wears a mask, uh, that presents themselves as one thing. But this, but this idea of conceit is this idea of, of presenting a bigger self than you actually are. And he's saying do nothing out of, by, with illegal, um, with uh, manipulative exploitation or puff, a puffed up sense of self, but instead, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That the key to unity is humility. The key to unity is humility. Now it's interesting because we had to define the word humility correctly to get at the, to get a, um, the right sense of what Paul is trying to say here. C.S. Lewis writes that humility is not thinking less of yourselves, it is thinking of yourself less. Elsewhere, Paul will write that, that have sober judgment to see yourself rightly. Now, that's significant because if you see yourself as a zero, then it's not that hard to treat others as a one. In fact, what I found is that oftentimes that the most critical people are also the most self-condemning people. If I hate myself, then I tend to despise others around me. Because this is not what Paul is talking about. It's like, start, like really talk down on yourself, get, like belittle yourself, get low in the dirt. And that's not the humility he's talking about. He's like, see yourself rightly as a child of God who has received undeserved grace and favor. That the father of this universe has opened his arms wide to you and embraced you in all of your brokenness and is drawing out the, the, the man or the woman that he made you to be. And in seeing yourself rightly as a beloved child of God, redeemed by the grace of God, now treat others as even more significant. From a place of being rooted in God's love, confidence in the unconditional, unchanging favor and grace of God, from that position, now love others as even more significant than yourself. In the ESV, it, it, you translated it as uh, count others more significant. In the NIV, it says consider others more significant. That word is interesting because that idea of even considering, uh, to consider something, almost, it indicates this like as if you haven't yet. Hey, consider this. Here's an idea you might not have thought about. Here's something to kind of just throw in your brain and let it uh, circle around a little bit. Consider others. You may not have seen, not thought about this yet, but look at the people around you. Like even right now, just take a look, people around you. Now kind of uh, think about your own family, consider the others in your family. 
Now, what would it look like to walk in the front door of your home or to walk in the front door of this church or to walk in the front door of your office or place of employment and intentionally begin to, to try to see others as more significant than yourself? Their needs, their desires, their struggles, their fears, their insecurities, their baggage, their hurts, their pains, as more significant than your own. Now, it's interesting because Paul's not talking about being a pushover. He's, saying, he's not saying forget yourself, because obviously there's, there's places that we need God's grace and forgiveness and healing and freedom. There's places that we need God to show up in our lives. And so uh, we go to Jesus with our hurts and our, our baggage and our shame and our guilt. We, we keep uh, coming before the Father to receive from Him what He wants to pour into our lives as sons and daughters. But as important as, as significant as that is, we take that position as we then enter in and go, okay, now then how do I shift my mind to now see your needs as even more important than my own? Which we can only do if we're receiving what we need from somebody else. If we still are living in this fear that what we need is not gonna be met, where we're struggling is, is not gonna be built up, where we're broken is not gonna be healed, where we're lacking is not gonna be filled. If we're still striving, at, if we still feel the need to strive after our own well-being, then we will never be in a place that we can actually look to others to step into what, uh, their well-being. Hey Amen, are we following along on this? Now, I have to be really honest that it's way easier to preach this message than to live this message. Because even as I've been processing this, I'm immediately putting my own, like Sadie's name into the mix, my children into the mix, my coworkers into the mix. Like how am I walking into the room where my first thought is, what do you need? How can I be a blessing to you? Where are you? As compared to walking in the room and thinking, this is what I need. This is how you can bless me. And unfortunately, the answer more often than not is that I walk in with the, with the attitude of here I am, not there you are. And Paul is saying, let this be your mind, which is yours in Christ. It's not something you're having to conjure up for yourself. It is the mind that Christ is giving us by his spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, Paul writes, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. The person with the spirit makes judgment about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. And then he ends with this, but we have the mind of God. Of Christ. This is yours 
in Jesus. Paul recognizes that the great danger to the church and the great poison to our souls is pride. In fact, biblically, this is what God considers the most significant and painful sin. Now, historically throughout the church world at different seasons of life, we've ranked other sins as being of more significance, of, of fighting against, of, uh, of um, going after out there in the world. But what the Bible talks about over and over again is that the great sin that we need to be rooting out of our lives and of the church is pride. It's thinking of ourselves as more important or significant, more valuable as the center of this universe. C.S. Lewis, again, he writes in Mere Christianity, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Now again, just in your own mind, just go back to your own family. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began began now C.S. Lewis continues the other thing he says is that pride the danger of pride is that it's way easier to see in somebody else than to see in ourselves but the greater the pride in us the more offended we are by the pride in somebody else so the great test of pride is whether we're bothered by somebody else's. Because what we're saying is that I am so offended by their desire to get center of attention because I'm the one that actually deserves to be the center of attention. Do we get that? And so if in your mind, when you're thinking about your family, and I read that quote, that pride has been the great downfall of every family since civilization, the first thing you thought about is your husband, then maybe we need to hold up a mirror. Can we do that this morning? Because Paul will continue. How do we move from this position of pride and selfishness to a position of humility? Well, according to Paul, we look at Jesus. The one, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God, a thing to be gra grasped, <laughs> that's a hard word, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Now, there's a word that repeats itself in here that's critical to understanding this. It's actually uh, one, <clears throat> arguably the, the, the clearest declaration of the deity of Christ anywhere in the Bible, that Jesus is God. That word there is the word form. That Jesus was in the form of God. Now, when we think of the word form, a lot of times we can think of the, the external appearance of something. That, you know, this is uh, the form. If you think, of, think about the movie Moana, anyone seen the movie Moana? And, uh, you know, after the fish hook, he's able to transform into a hawk, but he's still, uh, he's still essentially himself, but just in the form of a hawk, right? But he's changed form, but it's still him. This is not what the Bible's talking about here. It's not even about external appearance. It's talking about the substance of something. It's the opposite. That the very substance of Jesus is God. In Colossians, Paul writes that, that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, that in him the fullness of the deity dwelled. John 1, that he was with God in the beginning. And he was God. That he created all things, and that all things were created through him. And that this word became flesh and dwelt among us. That if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. That Jesus was the substance of God. And yet... He didn't hold on to the glory and the honor that he deserves as God, but instead took the form of a servant, the same word, that the substance of Jesus is God, but the substance of Jesus is also a servant taking on the form of a man, different word. And that word for the form of a man is the word schema, which is actually the external appearance of something. So the substance of Jesus, who is in substance God, is the substance of a servant taking on the appearance of man. Why is that significant? Because the very essence and nature of God is a servant. One who pours out, gives of himself, Create space for others. From the very beginning of creation, this isn't new with Jesus, from the very beginning of creation, think about what God in heaven, the eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful God did. The one who reigned above the chaos of the earth, above all things, that a word brought the universe into being. What did this eternal, universal, all-powerful God do? He created space for humanity to flourish and thrive. He blessed, he spoke words of life. He's generous, abundant, flourishing. And his mandate is an invitation to more, 
to go, be fruitful, multiply. He places in the garden a tree of life from which they can eat. He's a God who pours out, blesses, provides. And all through the Old Testament, he's not a God who's holding back. He's a God who continues to give, a God who continues to show up, a God who continues to pour out. And so when he shows up in human form, what does Jesus say of himself? That the Son of God came not to be served, but to serve. That Jesus pours out, he empties himself. And so if this is the substance of God, then it is the substance of this universe. It is the way the world was meant to work. And so when Jesus says things like, to be first, you must be last. To lead well, serve others. He's not giving an anti-creation way of, of, of working. He's actually telling us how to live rightly in the way that he created the world to work. And that Jesus, pouring himself out, poured himself out even to the point of death. And even the most painful death, death on a cross. That Jesus takes on the shame and the brokenness of humanity in order that we might experience the life of God. And as Jesus lowered himself in a way that we can't even wrap our minds around, in response, God exalted him to heights that we can't even wrap our minds around. That one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So what knees are going to bow to Jesus? Every knee. Every knee is going to bow to Jesus. Now this isn't a word of salvation. This is a word of submission. It's not saying that everyone will be saved, but it is saying that at some point, everyone will recognize the authority of Jesus Christ. And so to do so now is to receive grace. To do so then is to face judgment. Now you may bow, then you must bow. And Paul, is reorienting this little church around the authority and the lordship of Jesus, lifting him up as the one true king, but also as the model of what it means to truly live fully alive as a human. And pouring himself out for us, he gave us an example of what it means to live for others. And so for this morning, I think the challenge is for us to each look at our own lives and ask that scary and dangerous but healing question, God, where have I allowed pride to take root in my own soul? Where have I placed my needs over others? Where have I considered myself more important than the people around me? Where have I centered myself on the throne of my life and replaced you as my true king? 
maybe this morning there's an act of surrender that in that great confession of pride that I have lived my life for myself and not as yours, God, that we receive the forgiveness and the grace of the cross where all of the pride of humanity died by the humility of Jesus. And from that position, even now, the great privilege of bending our knee to Jesus, of bowing to the rightful king, we're then able to stand and to, love, to see and to love others rightly and to intentionally lower ourselves having been lifted up by Jesus in order to lift up those around us. And so I want to pray for us that yes, we would be a church that lives on mission, that yes, we'd be a church that engages the world, but that we would do so from a position of humility and surrender to Christ, our true King. And even as we take communion, these humble elements that Jesus used to describe this unbelievable act, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take, eat, take and drink and do this every time in remembrance of me. There's a recognition of what Paul has declared of Jesus who poured out everything for us. So Lord, even right now, will you search our hearts? And God, will you root out in us that great sin, as Lewis taught, writes, that ugliness of pride, of conceit, of selfish ambition. ourselves rightly as undeserving but loved we receive your grace and your forgiveness even this morning we fix our minds on you Jesus you on the throne, you're on the throne. Will you help us to live from that perspective? 